Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Thanks, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in, indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, and with me is Susan Fox, our station's executive producer. Science! And our guest this week for episode 63 of the Event Horizon is none other than Dr. Scott Vigay, Dr. Geek. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we finally got everything nailed together. Well <laughs> enough to do a recording. <laughs> no, never... hey, after doing two years of audio drama, I completely understand. I think oh, my Day God. has had something to do with this, don't you? Yeah. I just, it's... it's uh, as simple as our mixing board is, we've only got a six-channel mixer here. As simple as it is, there are... Uh, I'm looking at maybe a hundred different controls, each of which are a variable setting. And the potential for something to go wrong is stupendous, even on a small <laughs> mixing board like this. And it's almost it, like you have to have a, a, a pre-flight checklist like you'd have for launching the space shuttle to get a recording done. Hey, 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 you weren't a film major for nothing. <laughs> they made you pay. Yeah, they made me pay for that. So welcome to the show. So, Thank you. I, Thank I you love, very much for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, I absolutely love being able to say this to our guests. Hi. Written any good books lately? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah. Um, tell us about it. Tell us about uh, the new one. All right. So here, let's tell you about the new one. Well, last time I came on, I was talking about my book, Archaeology and Fiction. Mm -hmm. Well, in that book, I start off each chapter with a uh, an exemplar of what I'm talking about. So I, what I did was I created a fictitious archaeologist, and I use a, a, I create a little vignette to illustrate the kind of the trope that I would be talking about and deconstructing later on. And um, my wife looked at the manuscript and said, you know, you have a, a lot of fun with these vignettes at, at the beginning of every chapter. Do you have a full story in mind? And I, I said, well, kind of. And she said, well, do you mind if I help you flesh it out? And when a New York Times bestselling author wants you to write a book with her, you say yes. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you're, you're, absolutely. You're, for the audience, his wife is, Doc, is uh, Debbie Vigay. Yes. Uh, most known for the Wicked series with Nancy Holder mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a bunch of thrillers and dark fantasy. And uh, so she and I worked together and we expanded upon the vignettes that were in Archaeology and Fiction. And we've created a new book called Tears of Poseidon, which will be coming out Ooh. later uh, this summer. I love the title. Yeah. So this so, is a work, this is a work and, of fiction. 
Yes, it's a it's a complete work of fiction. Oh my god! But but no, because Poseidon I I'm a uh, uh, because I'm an archaeologist, I try to treat the archaeology as realistically as possible. Mm-hmm. But given the fact that it is an action adventure book, um, we took use of those tropes and you know uh, really embraced it. So as long as we had a little bit of wiggle room to have fun, uh, the archaeology will be portrayed accurately. That sounds great. I can hardly wait to see it. Thank you. you. Yeah, it's, it's the um, vignettes in the uh, first book were so were so clever and really sort of carried the material along. Yeah, and in fact, what is so funny is I've had people come up to me afterwards uh, after that book came out and said, you know, I spent all night looking for the, uh, the 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 textbook or the other book that you were quoting at the beginning of every section. And, and they said, can you tell me what, what's the name of that book? I said, of course I can. It's uh, Tears of Poseidon written by me. And I'll be, uh, be glad to, you know, send it your way, uh, you know, later in the summer. Uh, so I guess I did my job too well. Uh, <laughs> there was a, 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 there's been a sizable amount of the, of the uh, people who have read the book thinking that I was quoting a real archaeologist, you know, notes from a real journal. Uh, and I'm just flattered that that was the reaction. I, I didn't mean to cause confusion, but the fact that it happened uh, is kind of nice. Actually, that is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, what else have you been up to? You've well, got, you've got something see, big coming up. Uh, oh yes, uh, we're actually getting ready to do Doctor Geek's Science Fair, uh, and uh, the whole Doctor Geek's Laboratory project. Uh, it was kind of twofold. I I always liked doing the audio drama and the the audio show. I love that, but it was only part one of my master plan, and I wanted to be able to kind of uh, present science fairs in a new way. I wanted people to have more of a hands on interactive experience uh, with the idea that you can science could be fun. And so what I've done is I've created a, a, a full-day expo called Dr. Geek's Science Fair. And it's a cross between a science fiction convention and a good old-fashioned science fair. It's really, really kind of awesome. And it's going to be this September, September 27th, at the South Florida Museum in Bradenton, Florida. Wow. This, yeah. is, this is quite a thing. This is, this, yeah. it's, it's, it's one thing to do a radio show, uh, which, um, I mean, we, we love the radio show ourselves. Thank you. Uh, and we listen to it just about every week. And our listeners love it as well. And we get a nice little spike every time your show comes on. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what this is, is it's really, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we've gone to all sorts of conventions th- throughout the uh, year. Uh, you know, we got to actually meet for the first time in person at Gallifrey One uh, in, uh, at the beginning of this year. And that mm-hmm. was great. We had a wonderful time. Uh, at that convention where we did the Dr. Geek's Laboratory Presents the Science of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And and it was great. All the, the people cosplaying uh, Osgood uh, came up and took photos with us. And then yeah. after uh, yeah. after our performance, uh, throughout the rest of the, the convention, when people saw us, they said, oh, look, it's the geeks. Uh, so I guess that's uh, the, our nickname now, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, sure. it was uh, It was really kind of cool. And it, so we will do things like that. You know, Dr. Geek Mm -hmm. Uh, lab presents the science of fill in the blank. Um, But that was, you know, I didn't want to just do that. And I I love going to conventions. So I said, well, let's let's try to do something a little bit more interactive. Uh, And I have a great partner with the South Florida Museum. They are, they've been great to us. Uh, Originally, I came to them and said, hey, I would like to put on an event at your facility, you know, and they said, well, would you mind working with us? 
And I said, absolutely not. I don't mind at all. This is wonderful. I love the support. And we've come up with a, uh, a, a an experience that actually utilizes every inch of the museum. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're it's taking not, over the uh, whole museum then. Yeah, we've, we've taken it over completely. Uh, you know, we're, um, in the planetarium, we will have a special episode of Dr. Geek's Laboratory uh, that is a planetarium show. Uh, and that was really kind of fun because it's not just taking our audio adventure that we've been doing for two years now, but there actually will be video segments of myself and some of the other members uh, where we play our characters in on, on film for the first time. Uh, so wow. it's going to be a mix of audio and video. Uh, up there taking over the entire dome, which is wonderful. And then in the planetarium, we're also going to have panel discussions, uh, like you would find at a traditional, uh, science fiction convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we're also going to have a performance by the Ken Spivey band is going to be performing there. And that's why I'm telling everybody to make sure that they get their, um, tickets ahead of time, uh, because the, while the events are going to take place all over the entire museum, if you want to make sure you have a guaranteed seat for all of the things in the planetarium, then def- you have to get a uh, all-access pass ahead of time. And uh, it's only $10, which is nice. You know, the museum worked with us to discount the entrance ticket so that it would be accessible to everybody, and that's less than a movie. So I, I hope everyone gets a chance, and if you want to get tickets, um, just go to uh, Dr. Ge- uh, Dr. Geek's Laboratory, um, drgeeklab.com, and click on Science Fair, and you'll find links there. Or you can uh, contact the South Florida Museum directly, uh, and I'll make sure that you guys have all that info so you can have it on your show notes. Um, but it's uh, it's so it's 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 been fantastic. We're actually going to have classrooms uh, in the in our classroom facilities where we're going to have hands-on activities. Uh, we've got a gentleman who brought a uh, uh, who's going to be bringing a uh, replica of the time machine from the George Powell. Uh, uh-huh. time, uh, the Time Machine film, mm-hmm. and we're going to be tying in H.G. Wells into telling the story of the exhibits, <coughs> and so you'll have a self-guided tour where you'll go along and you'll see how the exhibits tie into things like 20,000 Leaks Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, The Time Machine, uh, all the classics that you know really represent science from fiction, um, because... And, you know, it, it was once science fiction, but now they're science fact. You know, things like nuclear submarines and so forth. Nuclear um, submarines, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to have all that sort of stuff. And then if you're a fan of Doctor Who and if you're a fan of Star Trek, you know, you're going to see, uh, you know, stuff that represents those fandoms as well. And we're going to have the um, Ghostbusters from Orlando are going to come uh, come in. And so that, that fan group is going to be showing off some of their technology. Uh, and, uh, so we're looking forward to that. And it's just gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a, a, a fun, fun day. And it w- is great as we're gonna have activities, um, that kind of t- show you uh, simple applications of science, but it's all inspired by fiction. And, and then on top of it all, we're going to have what we are calling our Applied Geekdom Student Competition. And these are our school age kids, uh, ranging in ages, that are going to be putting on little exhibits uh, that show scientific principles inspired by fiction. And so we're in the, 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 the beginning stages of working all that out at, at the moment. Uh, but I'm really, really looking forward to be working with the kids and, and uh, seeing where their imagination takes them. This that is... sounds like stuff that their teachers wouldn't let them do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all gonna be, it's all gonna be safe and family friendly. We hope. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's my goal. It's not science unless there's at least one explosion. 
<laughs> well, or if you get a little messy, that's okay too. Yeah, messy's fine. Yeah, but you know, it's not family friendly if you blow up your mother. Right. I'm just saying. <laughs> so so it, it's it's I'm really excited. You know, every time I go down to that museum and work with their with their staff, I always walk away just even more excited. Uh, because they they have really embraced us, and uh, you know we gave them a preview of what we are planning to do for the planetarium, and their reaction was, "Oh, great! Well, you know this is awesome. It's actually inspired us to come up with ideas to help you make it even better, uh, to, so to utilize their their planetarium more." Um, I didn't understand this, but the planetarium had just gotten refurbished, so it is capable of doing far more than I had originally anticipated, mm. uh, which is making, which is gonna make the end product just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, it was so funny, I, I was filming, uh, the video portions of it, uh, last week, and, you know, I've been a podcaster for uh, nearly a decade now, and I've done Dr. Geek's Laboratory uh, for two years, going on to our third season. And so I'm capable of, of being comfortable in front of the microphone. But you start putting a, a, a film camera in front of me, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, the simplest of sentences, and all of a sudden your brain checks out. Uh, so I there was had quite the a... same problem. I Every had this I happen on Jeopardy. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then your mind went blank. <laughs> yes, I tell, lost on Jeopardy. Yes, tell I, me what I did not win. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, there was a few takes of that. Um, we eventually found something that, you know, I was comfortable with, but it, it, it was it was different. But I'm glad that we're doing it because, uh, you know, the, the whole Dr. Geek's laboratory project, it's evolving and taking a, a bold step to what I think is going to be where we're going to be. I mean, there will always be room for the the the, the audio show, and I be, and it's because we can do so much in audio. Uh, you know, we we did our tribute to parallel universes and you know and and mirror mirror uh, the Star mm. Trek episode uh, recently, and you could only we could only afford to do that in audio. Uh, you know, but I'm very happy with how that all worked out. In fact, this entire season has just been uh, fantastic. We oh, I'm uh, looking for the the evil Scott with. The beard. <laughs> the beard and everything. Yeah, actually doing the evil director geek lines. Uh, that <laughs> was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and especially when he, uh, starts to flirt with Claire, who is voiced by my wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that was, that was, that was funny. I mean, nobody knew how to write that. And, uh, I said, well, here, let me just take a, 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 a you know, a, a crack at coming up with something. And then on recording day, uh, it was mostly ad lib. Uh, you know, there were, it was, it was just really funny. And then, uh, no Debbie one needs to tell second. you how to flirt with your own wife. Okay? Yeah, no, but, it, but, but, but then Debbie, uh, when she recorded her lines, just really got into it. And it was <laughs> so, it was so hysterical to hear, you know, an, an evil version of Dr. Geek and, and Claire, uh, interact. It's just, well, and, it, and, uh, yeah. if it's the mirror universe, then Claire in the mirror universe would have to be, a nice person. I, well, actually, here's, here's the trick. What we've what we've told people in the episode is that in the parallel universe, Claire is the empress. So that implies that our Claire is the good one. Uh, try, try not to think about it. Um, you know? so yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the good one. If, so if, this if, is this the is, good if one. this Claire is the good one, what does that mean? Actually, it was so funny uh, uh, when we were doing it. We said, well, we, we had so much fun in the parallel universe that we have to go back. And Debbie is uh, championing for us to do an homage to the Flash Gordon films. 
And, uh, and, you know, when she said that, I was thinking of the Buster Crab cereals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was referring to the Sam Jones 1980 film. Uh, so I, <laughs> yeah. I, I can just see it now, you know. Oh, my god! I think gosh. they bought every bugle bead in Europe for that. <laughs> that looked so good. It looked, the closer I, you looked, looked, the better it looked. It looked awesome. Um, if, yeah. oh, if only they'd had a script. <laughs> And Susan was actually on the set. I was the on set. the set once. She got to you visit the, the set, set? Yes, while was. that was being filmed. Oh my goodness. So you know, she got uh, to see all the costumes up close. You get to see Sam Jones up oh close. My gosh. And he was so nice and just my little little adolescent hormones were carbonated. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was so funny because uh, Debbie and I saw the movie Ted recently and the, you know, he's in that film uh, mm. repri- sort of reprising a little bit throughout the entire film and there's uh, a sequence where it's sort of a fantasy sequence and I'm sure that's what was going through Debbie's mind you know <laughs> if we ever if, she, if we ever met Sam Jones uh, it would I, I think he would just be kind of run in fear uh, so <laughs> anyway so I can just see it now it'll be you know we go back to the parallel universe and it'll be you know go flask go go flask go flask <laughs> <laughs> Ah, right, yeah, you know, save you every, save one, every of one of us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but that was, you know, that was really fun. You know, what's interesting is that the entire season we have, we have three investigations we did this year. Uh, the first being uh, robotics, uh, talking about the the possibility of our companion, the robot. Will we have anything like a R2-D2 or C-3PO? Mm-hmm. And then we... Um, uh, we moved on and we talked about uh, replicators and the, the possibility mm-hmm. of creating something that, where we could say, you know, tea, Earl Grey hot. Um, and when it came to that, I said, well, you know, we usually have an episode where we go into the future and show you what this looks like. Well, we, everyone kind of gets the idea of what that looks like, and that wouldn't be fun. And I thought, well, wait a second. The, the term replicator could also mean, like, the replicators from Stargate. Uh, oh yeah, and, uh, I kind of wondered about their use of the term. <laughs> yes, well, especially when you have machines that can replicate themselves. Uh, so, and which is what is starting to happen now already. So we we did an homage to both, and then uh, we're ending season two with a discussion of bionics. And so mm. when you if you look at it, robotics, the the replicators, and bionics, they all kind of tell a continuous story, and we've created a season arc. Uh, that is giving us a chance to tell a much greater story than we did last year. What do you think about the dis- the discussion going on right now in scientific circles about the Im- the emerging improbability of the singularity event? Uh, what can... do you mean, like the Big Bang? Or... No, no. I mean uh, they're they're calling this the the point at which machines become conscious. Oh, you're talking about that. that uh, the improbable, yes. the, the, the fact that there, uh, the people are saying that it's improbable. Um, mm-hmm. I would never use that term because you never know what can happen or how it will develop. I think that uh, you know, uh, examples like Watson and so forth show that we've come a long way with computing process. At which point will we cross that event horizon, huh? Uh, and <laughs> actually achieve sentience? I, I don't know. Uh, but I think that it is a possibility. I don't think that we should actually um, uh, close the the chapter on that anytime soon because things are, are developing at a dramatic rate. 
you know, and I think also what is considered um, computer consciousness and everything like that, you know, it will redefine as we redefine technology. As we've been learning from the Bionic episodes, this is a little bit of a teaser for the end of the season because those episodes haven't aired yet. Uh, you know, we, we learned quite a lot that, that in, in this case, um, what was the fiction of Bionics, you know, the six million dollar man, the Bionic woman and all that stuff. In some cases, in some minor cases, we've actually surpassed it. Uh, and the FDA has actually, uh, approved for the first time a Bionic replacement arm. Uh, and that's, a oh, this big, is the, big deal. Uh, uh, the Luke arm. Yes, very, very big deal. Uh, because it's supposed to be able to plug into the depending on the type of loss to the limb. Um, there's a the the capacity to plug into the remaining uh, neural pathways, and so that it could function like a, a more like a traditional arm, and that you wouldn't have to have a re like a learning curve to awkwardly manipulate the device. And uh, we were talking to one of the uh, the. One of the the leaders in bionics in Florida, and he said that you know everything's been controlled by Bluetooth now and stuff like that, and so unfortunately that means that you're now opening up the possibility of having your your bionics hacked and that you could come down with a uh, computer virus. And he wasn't joking. Uh, so, but what I'm saying is that you know um, what how we integrate with our technology and all that sort of stuff could we never know what will eventually come out of all that. We uh, spoke to an author uh, last month. He was the author of a book from Tor Books called Red Devil 4. His name is Eric Luthart, and he is, in real life, uh, not only a science fiction writer, but he is what what he calls a... His specialty is neuroprosthetics. Oh. And uh, his book is about what happens when our brains... Uh, become so accessible to uh, the world of cybernetics that it's possible to have your own, your brain hacked. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. happens then? Hilarity yeah. ensues. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's very interesting. It, it, we foreshadowed some of that technology in some of our episodes. Uh, when uh, in, in the robotic episodes, I think it was episode eight, when uh, Mr. Creature goes into the far future and people are t- uh, talking about getting brain spam, uh, you know, uh, someone, you know, kind of envision pop up messages from Facebook, you know, t- saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I've got a friend request. Will you look at this? And, you know, hey, this is what I was having for breakfast, you know, all the minutia. Uh, but it would, you know, in some cases approximate. Uh, other science fiction and fantasy concepts like telepathy and the like, because you would be able to uh, be part of that World Wide Web in, in an interface that would be uh, unlike anything that we've used so far. Or uh, you would be able, by the mere thought, be able to control like your coffee maker or you know stuff like that. So kind of approximate an, the illusion of. Uh, telekinetics and stuff like that. And then it just reminds me of Arthur C. Clarke saying, you know, any advanced technology advanced enough will appear as magic. And we're kind of getting to that point where we can kind of do that. And um, the month before, we were talking to uh, John Scalzi about his uh, Old Man's War series. And in that is a device called a Brain Pal. And it does essentially the same thing. It's an implant and uh, it's an artificial intelligence that interfaces directly with your brain. And produces many of these, these same kinds of artifacts and results and allows you uh, artificial telepathy with other people who have brain pals. 
What yeah. bothered me about that is, you know, it's it's tough enough when you bring a new computer home and you set it up, and then then you see next year's model has just shown up, and what you have is is outdated. I don't want to have to get surgery for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that point, well, hopefully we just upgrade the firmware uh, often. I like I guess. my firmware where it is. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the other uh, things that comes up when we talk about all this sort of stuff is, will people elect to uh, embrace this technology? Will they uh, purposely augment themselves with bionic arms and legs and implants and, and so forth? And, you know, somebody asked me that uh, recently, and I said, well, honestly, I don't know... Um, it, how that will be embraced. I mean, it all come, kind of comes down to what's seen as cool. But I do know that there was a, a young lady who was on Dancing with the Stars this year, and she uh, was a, w, uh, a double amputee. She has no legs. And yet she still came in second uh, on Dancing with the Stars. And you see, uh, you know, uh, athletes who are, you know, using uh, prosthetic legs and other and other limbs and can still be very, very active. And you sit there going like, Darn, they're they're more mobile than I am. Yes, yeah, so uh, Paralympians. You know, you know when when uh, normally abled people are envying the Paralympians, that's something. Yeah. And have and you it, ever seen a uh, wheelchair uh, basketball game? That is some. Yeah. Damn yeah. vicious basketball. Oh, absolutely. And, and so it, it's a, a very interesting time we're in. And like I said, it, I was shocked to see that. The, the, the true science behind bionics, uh, in some cases, in some small cases, has surpassed the fictional element already. I mean, you know, they're not giving the people the ability to, you know, uh, single-handedly flip a, a jeep or jump over a, a building or anything like that. But, uh, that, but then that's fiction and that's where we have fun and we create superheroes. Um, but that, you know, it's a different purpose. Well, it's very easy to be, to be, uh, cutting edge and and all science predictive and say something stupid like yeah. um uh, in Johnny Johnny Mnemonic the uh um the hero of the the movie uh played by Keanu Reeves uh has had his brain modified so that it can hold get ready 80 gigs of data <laughs> dude he had surgery for that Dude, I have a thumb drive that's that big. <laughs> well, what was it in the book? Was it? I don't know what it was in the book. I don't remember. <laughs> in the book, it, it was probably you know like a a modem with a baud rate of right, right, like twenty four baud, uh, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! So yeah, it, it's it, very fascinating, and a lot of things are are changing. But you know, when it comes to things like flying cars or bionics and or, or robot uh, assistance and everything, uh, it, it's really going to come down to what we embrace and what we want. And, uh, you know, it, so th that's that's why I think shows like Dr. Geek's Laboratory and yours that, you know, bring this stuff up, it gets the conversation going and people can decide. Uh, you know, uh, when we, we talked about the 3D printer um, in our replicator investigation, and we had this wonderful conversation a year ago because we do those interviews well in advance of the episodes. And uh, we did this interview with a company called the Dreambox. 
and it's uh, it's uh, a 3D printer uh, vending machine, and it can do all sorts of stuff. And it has a simple uh, interface. Something uh, as the the creator said, I want my grandmother to be able to operate this thing without a fear of it going wrong. And so it had a lot of error checking software to make sure that the pattern that you wanted would actually print correctly and all that stuff. And they said, um, I, you know, they were telling us all about it. And as we were getting ready to transmit that episode, I went back to their website to see if there was any updates to find out that the website doesn't exist anymore. Oops. Oops. And I called the guy up and luckily he answered and I said, you know, so hey, what happened? And he said, well, um, we had further developed our, our dream box, but, uh, you put one of those things in the mall and you give the people, you know, almost endless possibilities of what it can do and their mind freezes because the average person does not wake up and say, today's the day. Today I'm going to go and, you know, my toothbrush wore out. I'm going to go and 3D print a toothbrush. No, you know, they go, I'll go to, you know, CVS and I'll get a replacement for a couple of, uh, maybe a dollar, you know? Uh, and be on my way. I don't have time for the thing to print. You know where they uh, should have put it? The the adult entertainment store. <laughs> I was going to say the California Science Center. Well, actually, of all things, the, uh, the Dreambox was, uh, Dream was actually store? developed by um, a, a couple of young men out of Berkeley, uh-huh. uh, out of UC Berkeley. And uh, so what they ended up doing was repurposing their technology, taking what they'd learned and, and uh, created this thing called a, a Twindom photo booth. So you go in and you stand in this thing or you put any object in the booth uh, up to a human being. And it will scan that and eventually create like a mini you, a little action figure. Oh dear God! You know the possibilities mini for copyright me? infringement are endless. Yeah, and what ended up happening was, um, whereas they had to sit there and and educate every possible um, customer with the with the photo with the um, the vending machine, uh, when it came to the photo booth. Uh, you put a few samples of what that thing can produce out there, and they had a line around the block. Uh, Disney so, would shut that down in a hot minute. So it was it was very interesting. They, it's it's all about um, it's all about you know uh, people's expectations. You know, you look at a, an action figure and go, "Wow, that thing's awesome!" You know, shouldn't I have one of those? Isn't somebody's birthday? You know, maybe I'm getting married and I want a cake topper or something. That looks like that looks like us. You know, yeah, that looks like, like us. Uh-huh. People grasped that and were able to embrace it really quickly. Whereas uh, a 3D printer that could uh, print basically any any pattern that you presented to it within a certain degree, there were you know it wasn't able to do multi. Um, multi-material prints because mm-hmm. that requires multiple printers. Um, but you know, it could do far more than just an iPhone case. You know what I mean? Uh, and yet, yet it was sugar. You could you could uh, make any edible yeah. cake topper yeah. thing. Yeah. And there are there are three D printers that can do that. That's, that's oh a good yeah, there's three D printers that can do a lot of things. Your and son was talking about that the other day, and that we should have promotional Krypton Radio candies to give out. <laughs> Actually, you should probably have uh, kryptonite of, of some sort, right? You know, green rock candy. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, uh, I, that that's sort of edging off into trademark infringements. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to avoid that. I mean, krypton yeah. is an element of the you know periodic table of elements. You know, so right. if someone could have you know trademarked that, I think the oxygen network might have beaten us to it. <laughs> yeah, and they couldn't trademark oxygen either. Same problem. Yep. 
So awesome. I love the idea of, of uh, so 3D printing. There's a new one, and I can't remember I can't remember the maker of it, uh, but they're based in Pasadena, and uh, they have uh, I think they have a Kickstarter going on right now, uh, and their printer is going to cost 250 bucks. Nice. And they did it by dramatically simplifying the uh, the bed motion. Uh, what yes. they have is two interlocking um, two interlocking toothed rods, uh, and when one is turning, uh, it's moving the other one, um, and it, it becomes it makes the other one a linear activator, and vice versa, and it's they slide back and forth, uh, and it's okay. anyway, by doing it this way. Uh, they can uh, they can reduce the part count by about sixty percent and drop the price. It nice. Also, it also removes the need for bed leveling software. It becomes completely irrelevant. Oh, that's awesome! And uh, you know, I actually have a story that connects to that. I was at a Fanboy Expo in in uh, Florida uh, last year, mm-hmm. and I was giving uh, the pitch about the show to, to somebody. And uh, I was explaining about 3D printers and stuff like that because we had just done the, that uh, script. And uh, from uh, the other side of the room, I hear uh, someone go, 3D printer? And they come around and they, they come over into our booth and they said, do you know anything about 3D printers? And I said, well, a little. And they said, great, because I have one and it's not working. <laughs> And, and I'm like, well, Dr. Geek to the rescue. Uh, and from talking to the, the people about the 3D printer, we know that the bed leveling, that is a, a big deal. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's not a, a simple device. You know, it, many things can set it off. And one of the, the, the tricks is that it has to actually be in a, in a stable place. It has to be level. And you, emotion can cause things to go out of alignment. Yeah, you can't and, put one of these things on a card table, for example. Exactly, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, so, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, I know about the, you know, the MakerBot version of these things. So it's, you know, take a quick look. And, uh, and yeah, sure enough, it was just a, a very unstable uh, table that it was on. And uh, they found something a little better, and all, th- all of a sudden everything worked again. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's great that, that there's that new version coming out. When it came to the, uh, uh, for our interview, when I said, well, you know, if your company no longer is selling the, the or this or doing that, you know, the Dreambox, what can I do? And I said, do I have your permission to go ahead and still play the interview? We'll explain all this afterwards. And, and use it as a perfect example about how predicting the future is hard to do and about how it's very much, uh, on us as a society to, uh, be ready for it when it's there because, uh, you know, a, as cool as the photo booth is, it's only a fraction of the potential of that device. Um, but that's what people are ready to grasp at the moment. And I'm not saying everybody, but mm-hmm. I'm saying like the average consumer, which is what the target was. Uh, and it's at some point we'll kind of get to that Ripplemat future where you know you can go to your corner store and and uh, send your 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 plans and get stuff. And I know that that's happening in a few places, but something on a much broader scale and a lot more mainstream is what we're all hoping for. Well, at, at the moment, it's uh, the technology is still very much a uh, wow, cool 
what can I do with this? Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's trying to, it's, it's a solution in search of a problem. I mean, you can right. print things like napkin rings and curtain rings, you know, for the shower and. Right. And, but what and, I uh, really want is bio. And, yeah, right, but, but to what get I really your... want is bioprinting, right? I want to be able to print a kidney or, or, an, or other organs that could, mm-hmm. you know, eliminate the need for a wait list. Uh, you know, or re, or, or eliminate the problems with rejection and all that sort of stuff. And and the thing is, bioprinting is you know in its extreme infancy, but we are moving in that direction. And when we had our uh, our interviews, at some point we hit a few NDAs because they started talking on topics that they should stop, and and that implied that there's a lot more activity in those uh, you know th- than is generally thought of. But it's good that they're working on that. You know, we don't have the ability to, to print kidneys yet, but it would be nice if we could someday. Uh, it's a filter. And, yeah. I think that's going to yeah. happen before we print a brain or a you know, yeah. Any, yeah or a muscle even. Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, um, I think a lot of the activity uh, going on with three D printing it reminds me of where printers in general were. Um, I guess uh, twenty about, years yeah, ago, about 20 we were years ago. we were very excited, and we all used too many fonts. <laughs> well, at, yeah, twenty twenty well, years ago, we had tractor feed paper. Yes, and, and yes. Uh, we had um, this this uh, uh, dot matrix that print head that basically uh, drove printed ink against the paper with little solenoids, and it sounded like somebody trying to grind the top off of... But we loved those. And we were so happy to have <laughs> well, them. And, and, yeah. and, the, and the fun part was, you know, uh, folding the edges of the, uh, you know, so that you could then rip off the uh, the printer feed. Yeah. We used to that. call that burst and collate. <laughs> yeah, and that was a, that was a major job. I was working, yep. I was uh, uh, a part of a Radio Shack Color Computer Users Group back in the day. Oh, excellent! Well, actually, I had a a um, a Radio Shack printer uh, around that time period, and it had a special button that was uh, N uh, NLQ, and it stood for near letter quality. Uh, and so it was a, uh, it was still a dot matrix printer, but if you had it in NLQ mode, it would go over it a couple more times, and so you couldn't quite tell. It looked more like real, uh, letters as if it was typed on a traditional electric typewriter, you and know? Yes, I had one of those too. And my point is that, uh, 3D printing right now is still in that archaic, chaotic stage where we're still trying to figure out how to you know, how to basically make things work, like this new 3D printer that has 60% fewer parts and costs 250 bucks and does the same job as and the that's gonna seem, printers. And that's, sooner or later, that's going to seem as primitive to us as the dot matrix is. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. my yeah. point. Ab- absolutely. And the, the more people play with it, the more people uh, challenge what it can do. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's nice that you can print a, a 20-sided dice or, or a napkin ring, but, you know, you're like, eh, you know, that's not going to solve... Uh, any any real need, you know? There, there's, uh, it's too easy uh, to manufacture that stuff on a mass scale. That it's not that's not going to fill a niche. It's not uh, it's not cost effective. No, but what I see happening is the same thing. I mean, what we're what we're what we're doing is we're discussing, uh, we're seeing what we have in front of us and saying, uh, what can we make out of this? What can we do? Where is it going to go from here? And 
you could just as easily replace the thing that we're looking at with something from science fiction and say, could this really work? Can we really put this together and make this work? And yeah. the the answer is often yes. Well, the science fiction has been, you know, inspiring people for years. I mean, we all saw the communicators on Star Trek, and that's where we got our flip phones. That's, and the pads. Just a classic example. And the pads yes. from Star right. Trek The Next Generation are our iPads. And that's, of course, the whole point of Dr. Geek's Lab. Yep. Yep. And, and you know, and what is what is phenomenal is... Uh, people are, uh, really embracing us. It's awesome. And we have a lot of, uh, homeschooling, uh, parents who are using us now as supplemental material to their uh, kids' science curriculum. I mean, we're not, <laughs> we're never gonna, re- we're never gonna replace a textbook, nor should we. But if we can be a little bonus, a little extra thing, uh, that's wonderful. And I, and I'm very, uh, grateful for that and very encouraged. And, and people seem to, to really like what we're doing and, and kind of get the concept of what we're trying to, to shoot for. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of things, uh, in the first two years that are maybe a little hard to grasp, or there's all sorts of possibilities of how it could play out. You know, if if you really want to have the the future that Star Trek shows, I think you need the warp core and the replicator. Those two uh, inventions basically are the root of everything else that they do. Uh, an endless power supply and the ability to generate matter out of out of energy. Uh, and You're going to have to play that very carefully. I yeah. I, I had written a script which will never be made um, about someone shipping uh, narcotics, not as as you know a pile of drugs but software yeah software to plug into a replicator and that's, I could, that's I, how I they did it it was very convenient and yeah. um you know you you tweak a molecule or two when your output and your you know your earl t earl gray hot could be hot poison in a glass so <laughs> you know exactly those are going to have to go proceed with extreme precision yep yep and you know what was uh, what was great—a little preview of what we're going to do for season three. Uh, you know, we had uh, Doctor Who uh, celebrated its 50th anniversary re- recently, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was great. And there was, so there was a lot of interest in Doctor Who and, and stuff like that. And then someone somewhere kind of said, "Well, wait a second. You know, Star Trek came out in '66, uh, so we're about a year or so away from its 50th anniversary." Uh, so I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's do, um, some, some, uh, Star now. Trek ones. Yeah. You know, and so, um, we're gonna be talking about instantaneous travel, and that covers things like stargates and, tra- uh, transporters and warp drive and, you know, and all that sort of and, stuff. And, and, and I want, I would love a discussion of the Albuquerque drive. Which mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. The Albuquerque Drive. Oh, that's the, the, the modern, the, the scientist the, in Mexico the, who's yes, working that physicist out. in Mexico who's figured out how to, how to um, make warp bubbles? And the they're hilarious. doing practical practical experiments uh, to see if they can actually uh, warp the. Fa- it turns out that that uh, light cannot travel faster than a certain speed within a medium relative to mm-hmm. uh, its starting point. However, there is no limit at which space may be contracted or compressed. There's no limit Makes to the sense. speed at which that can happen. So you can cheat physics by making a warp bubble and sitting your ship in the middle of it. And relative to uh, relative to the ship's local space, it's not moving at all. 
But the ship's yeah. the bubble surrounding the ship, and the ship's space is is what's moving across, uh, at, at and going to the nearest star in two weeks instead of four point six years at light speed. Right. Uh, of course, the problem is that uh, you accumulate so many high energy particles on the trip that as soon as you drop the the uh, warp bubble, you're going to emit. All of that energy all at once along right. the line what do you, of flight. What do you do with that? Yeah, effecti- uh, you, effectively yeah. blasting away I think anything that p- might be sitting there when you arrive. Well, point it away from yourself. <laughs> yeah, you don't, yeah, you, you want to point it away from, yeah, you don't, you, you definitely. Point it away from the ship or you're going to have crispy critters on the other hand. Well, what I, I love about this uh, topic is the fact that NASA is, you know, is, is spending some time and effort on it. And in fact, I think uh, they just announced like uh, a latest example of what they're kind of aiming for. And then, you know, here's this gentleman who's, you know, working on the concept. The, it, you know, if from a from a traditional science perspective, it seems like folly. You know, why would you bother? Because uh, an object can either travel at the speed of light. Uh, uh, and there's potential for uh, things that we think will travel faster, but you can't take an object, would say, sitting at rest, sitting at my desk, uh, and then you know throw that faster than the speed of light. There's you know it, it just doesn't seem to work as we understand uh, physics today. But I you know I, I say let's challenge that, let's redefine the problem, and something like what you just said is a way to, to do it. You know I'm not trying to get light to go faster within, you know, the atmosphere of Earth. But let's try, you know, approaching it from a different angle. And I got nothing. <laughs> Are you there? I just, I, yeah, Are you there? I'm, I'm here. I just ran dry. Okay. What I liked about the um, Aliquare, am I pronouncing that correctly? Albuquer. Albuquer drive is that the sketch he made of it, it, it came out shortly after the 2009 Star Trek and looked for all the world like the Vulcan cruiser with the circle around it. Well, as it should, right? Because I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they, got the pronunciation uh, right. It's Al- Albuquerque. Albuquerque. I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll look it up. <laughs> I look apologize up. to the good doctor if I've offended in any way by my defective pronunciation. I I've often the said that, that if you're going to build a starship, it better be recognizable. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, if it, if it's going to be built, it's going to look like the Enterprise in it, one way or the it other. It has to, or or like a Hugo to. Award or something, you know. Yeah, or or you know, or the Serenity or the Millennium Falcon. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be someone who's inspired by all of that, who's gonna come up with the design that works, and it's gonna be influenced by what's been driving their passion. And if yeah, it's their mother, exactly. it's gonna be named the Matilda, and we're gonna jolly well <laughs> like it. <laughs> so, um, what was it like sitting down to write a fiction book as contrasted to uh, working on the technical work? Where you, know, where you had no technical, I mean, the foundation of what you were writing was not a technical book. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't it? No, uh, and, and it was fascinating. Uh, I've had a, a rather interesting journey when it comes to stuff like this because uh, my undergrad was in political science and so uh, in uh, my undergrad they taught us how to take you know a simple topic that you could maybe discuss for a page and that blow that up for 60 70 pages <laughs> you know just really you know uh, 
in, enhance the minutia of everything you talk about. And then I went to law school, and law school teaches you how to be precise. So take 60 or 70 pages of really dense material and get that concept down to maybe a, a page. Uh, and then... Uh, I did a ton of technical writing for LexisNexis and so forth, uh, and and then I went ahead and did um, the uh, uh, archaeology and fiction, and that was kind of a blend of the of the two. But really, honestly, the one the one uh, feedback I've gotten is this was great, but you know, couldn't you have written more about it? I would love more on this topic, and and so I had to kind of relearn how to, to take my time. You know, it was uh, it was uh, real interesting. The outline for the book, you know, was uh, really condensed, and my wife kept saying, "You know, tell me more, tell me more. You know, take your time, build to it, build to it." Uh, so it was it was great, and I learned a lot from her, and uh, we had a lot of fun working on it. And uh, I, I, it, I really, I owe that a lot again to Debbie because she's had several uh, co-authors in her career, and so she kind of mm-hmm. knows how to. To work with us, you know, and and also she knows that I'm passionate about this material, and so she was able to get me to uh, bring out more detail and 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 have fun with it, uh, and it was it was really kind of cool. I, I've just looked it up, by the way, and it's um, it's uh, the physicist's name is Miguel Alcubierre, Alcubierre. And I've been mispronouncing it the whole time. It's A L C U B I E R R E. So it, that's a fascinating process, uh, going through that, uh, uh, and learning not only, um, how your story, getting the idea of how your story is going to go and seeing that form in your head, but learning how to think about it at the same time from somebody right. who's got tremendous experience with it. Right, exactly, and and to present it in a way that would still be entertaining. And you know, pacing is is everything. And uh, it, well, I had a pretty good idea of the characterization of the archaeologist, and 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 I knew uh, thanks to those uh, vignettes from the other book, I knew the beats of the story. That was not mm-hmm. the problem. What it was was fleshing that out and making it worth your time to to read it, uh, and and not be and not be a direct ripoff of Indiana Jones or the librarian or any of the other ones that have come before, but to actually try to add something new to this whole topic. And, it, you know, it, it talks about the, the, the search for Atlantis, and I have to joke. I mean, I had, I had to do it because you know, it's one thing, in, as an archaeologist in the archaeological community, you're not, it's not something that comes up. In fact, it's very much frowned upon. Uh, but if you are uh, presenting science at a science fiction convention, uh, it's a top, it's a question that comes up all the time, and and so uh, Jason Della Torre, who uh, wrote Ancient Rising, which is also about uh, Atlantis, and he plays he's the voice actor who does uh, Rick on Doctor Geek's Laboratory, mm-hmm. the new character we introduced this year. Uh, he and I did a panel together at uh, TimeGate, and we're going to do it again at DragonCon talking about the search for Atlantis. And, you know, he's doing it from a fictional point of view. Uh, I'm talking about it as an archaeologist, and then we're using uh, Tears of Poseidon as an exemplar about how how reality would be then phased back to fiction. 
so it, it's it's a, a, a just a, a really wonderful experience, and and honestly, uh, it was an opportunity that I know that it would not be uh, a, a common one uh, to be able to do this, and I'm just very thrilled to have the chance, and I'm glad people seem to like what I'm doing. I love the idea of Atlantis in general. I mean, it's it's just it captures the imagination, and so many of the the cities of legend that people thought were just stories have turned out to be real, like the lost city of Troy. Oh my God! Yeah, well, Troy is what started it all off, really. I mean, we, we can blame a lot of paraarchaeology on the discovery of Troy. Uh, because he was told at the time, you know, Schliemann was told, oh, it's an allegory, it can't possibly be real. And he said, well, I'll take my copy of the Iliad, I'll walk to where it basically said it is, and I'll start digging. Now, what level of Troy <laughs> he found is not probably the, the, the one from the Trojan War, we believe, mm-hmm. uh, that that's uh, Troy level 7, I believe. Uh, but the point being is essentially it was exactly where people said it was. Uh, and, and that kind of lit people's imagination because if that's true, then why not Atlantis? No, Atlantis and, was, Atlantis yeah. was supposed to be just beyond the mouth of the, uh, the pillars uh, the, of, of, yeah, the pillars. uh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, uh, you know, beyond the pillars of Hercules and, you know, and, and stuff like that. Uh, we know that today the, is the cliffs of Dover. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's fascinating is what Atlantis has come to mean to people. It's become, you know, whether you're a follower of Edward Casey or you're a big fan of the Disney's Atlantis Lost Empire or, you know, uh, the Antinuvian World, you know, Atlantis, the, the Antinuvian World. That was a popular mm-hmm. book. Uh, you know, the, the, the point is that it's come to, to represent like a mother uh, uh, uh a mother civilization, you know, this is the root of of all other languages and so forth, and uh, th- that's why it is. Uh, it, it just sparks everybody's imagination. Could it be possible that something that old could have could have existed uh, with that level of of technical uh, skill? And you know, what's interesting is. In Plato's description, he doesn't talk about floating crystal-powered, you know, fish or, uh, you know, or anything like that. But just the the system of locks that was described is a technical marvel, uh, and that alone is enough to make people marvel at it. I think. And you know, is it possible that that uh, something like that existed? I'm willing to say it's possible. We haven't found absolutely everything on the planet yet. And every once in a while, a, a city is found that it did sink into the ocean or uh, consumed by the desert and, and so forth. So there's still stuff out there to, to discover. Yeah, uh, it was uh, Queen Nefertiti's Queen Nefertiti's palace turned out to be underwater, mm-hmm. and that was that was discovered by uh, marine archaeologists. Uh, and there was I forget the name of the uh, of the of the city, but it was discovered about. Uh, remnants of it were discovered, you know, a, a little while ago, and it was off the east coast of Africa. Oh, I'm and, sorry, and, it wasn't Nefertiti; it was uh, Cleopatra. With Cleopatra, the uh, you know, with this one, with the one I'm talking about, it was you know, again, something that the, this port city off the east of Africa mm-hmm. was only something that was you know in documents. There was no other proof that it ever existed, and then they started finding uh, remnants of it, and then they actually found it. Mm. Yeah. I think they need to be checking out the uh, the off the coasts in the uh, Mediterranean. 
Yeah, so it's so you know I, I figured well why not let's let's have fun with Atlantis and uh, it's been a a wonderful opportunity to get people to talk and to engage you know that's the thing that I I love about uh, interacting with people at conventions uh, it, it's not just a passive experience when we you come to one of our shows or our panels I really want to know what you think you know. And uh, I think people enjoy having a chance to ask a, a real archaeologist, you know, a real scientist, you know, what uh, what do you think, and and not have them uh, be laughed at. You know, I, I'm I'm in, I'm enthusiastic of their passion because I share it too. You know, I'm just as much a fan of Stargate and and all that stuff. Yeah, archaeology really means something, and certainly in the. Uh... Especially in the, the first, first movie, first for sure. Movie. And half of the movie was trying to understand, you know, the the language, and but but that was cool. <laughs> it was cool. Although I have to say, I love the fact that all he needed was one verb, one verb, and he and he was set to go. I mean, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's movie magic, I think. Yes, it is. Otherwise, uh, it'd have been eight all, hours of that. Yeah, it's all about co- time compression. You don't have time for him to struggle. You don't have time for him to make an, an improper guess. Uh, you know, he has to be right every time. Uh, I joke and I say that's how that was your cue that uh, Daniel Jackson was eventually going to become an ascended being because he was never wrong. Um, you know, uh, must be so, nice. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm really looking forward to the reboot that's coming. Uh, not so, because, <clears throat> you know, I I I I loved SG One and Atlantis. Uh, and I thought that they made some bold choices with the universe. There would probably yeah. not be ones I would have picked. I was about to say, that sounds diplomatic. I thought yeah. it stank on ice, but that's yeah. just me. Yeah, they, well, I think they wanted Valsar Galactica and they couldn't do it. So, Thank you, know. you. Thank you. They yeah. were going for that dark, we all hate each other and we're stuck here. And, and everybody and is uh, emotionally defective, and the the colonel couldn't make a decision to save his soul. And oh my god! Yeah, right. Oh, I, you know, the end goes. The list goes on. But just when you think that you know uh, they they made some wrong choices and, and such, you look at what is it Once Upon a Time and Doctor mm-hmm. Rush is Rumpelstiltskin in that, and he's brilliant in that. Well, this so. just proves that it wasn't Robert Carlyle's fault. No. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't write the scripts. He's very good. He's yeah. one of the main so, attractions of the universe. That's why I bothered with it as long as I I had. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think I believe that the the new uh, trilogy of movies is not going to have anything connected to SG-1 no, no, or any of that other stuff. It, it's well, it works for thing. Star Trek. We're too young to have our our favorite shows. I'm not sure it worked for Star Trek. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a. It worked. Uh, it worked financially for Star Trek. Yeah. Okay, the bean yeah. counters. Are gonna yeah, but the go fans. Some of the fans are saying, you know, let's. Uh, let's it's mixed. Let's un. Let's unretcon J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Actually, you know what's fascinating about that is uh, you sit there and go like, okay, well, you know, honestly, I enjoyed uh, the 2009 film uh, because I thought, well, if you're going to do it, this is a a fascinating way to to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I got a chance to see it at the South Florida Museum uh, a few uh, a week ago. They had it a Star Trek night and they played it uh, in the planetarium. It was a lot of fun. Uh, But I think the problem for J.J. Abrams comes when. Uh, the second film is essentially a redo of the second film uh, of, of Star Trek 2. And you're like, okay, so what are you going to do for 3, right? What are you going to do for 4? 
uh, it, it would be nice if you could actually tell original stories now with these people. If, you, if you're going to go ahead and do that, if you're going to upset the apple cart and uh, destroy Vulcan and uh, change the origin story of, of some characters and really be able to say, now we can't predict what's going to happen next, why basically uh, duplicate Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan? Um, I think that was where, at least for myself, I, it gave me pause. I think they needed to cast a somewhat more <clears throat> ethnic uh, uh, character, you know, actor for, for Khan if they were going to go that direction. They could, yeah. you know, okay, being counterpoint of view, they could have de- uh, de- um, delivered a, a, a billion uh, tickets if they just cast whatever whoever was the latest Bollywood star. They needed to go outside of the United States or England. They jumped yeah. the starship. They jumped the starship. <laughs> or, you know, or gone well, for a different just, start, you, old Star Trek episode. I was voting for Garth of Izar. It made as much sense as going back to Khan. Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. That that would have been cool. Uh, whom Gods Destroy? Mm-hmm. You, you know, the awesome. mad, extremely competent, but, but utterly mad uh, you know, starship captain. Yeah, exactly. Who is uh, as smarter than Kirk, you know, is one of his heroes. Uh, but at some, but see, I think the reason they haven't done that yet is because there wasn't enough time to show that uh, Kirk and Spock had been playing chess and would be able to do the whole kings to queens level three thing. It took, uh, it, took, it, took <laughs> it took thirty seconds in the original episode. They could spare thirty seconds. Oh if, well, if they take out more lens flare, they might make uh, find the room in the, uh, to do it. Uh, uh, yeah, lens flare, lens flare was the least of the problems with that. JJ okay. lens flare Abrams. It'll be Jar Jar Abrams if he screws up Star Wars. Oh my gosh! Actually, uh, I, I know we're, we're we're drifting a little bit, <laughs> we're, but we're uh, off. we are my, off topic. We were at the <laughs> Star Wars days uh, at Disney's Hollywood Studios and actually got to see Mark Hamill. Cool. Uh, that was that was pretty awesome, yeah. So uh, you know he looks like he's in good shape. I, I, I can't wait to see what they actually do. He's in a lot better shape than he was. I mean he was he was kind of looking. He went from studly to spudly. <laughs> well, and, uh, honey, I think we all have since we were twenty. Yeah, but the, but he's apparently hit the gym and and yep. uh, fixed himself up, and he's looking great. He's yeah, still lost, doing Joker voice too. Yeah, lost <laughs> about thirty pounds. Um, and and everything and, and yeah it, he uh, did a little bit of the Joker uh, at his meet and greet thing and that well not meet and greet he did a, a talk with Mark Hamill uh, and it was so popular that they simulcast it throughout the park because there was no way that they were going to limit it to just the what was it like the, the two or three thousand people that could fit in one of the rooms that's oh, very yeah. thoughtful that was yeah. thoughtful yeah and and. Uh, that was really cool, but you know, uh, kind of taking the conversation full circle, we were uh, on the the curb watching the parade go by, and Mark Hamill uh, was in one of the the parade cars, and he was waving to everybody, and he was maybe six feet away from us, but thankfully the security guard was two feet away from us. Yeah. I think Debbie would have like you know hopped onto the car and <laughs> you know planted a big smooch on him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Luke Skywalker, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when's the book coming out? Well, uh, it will be at the end of the, of the summer. Uh, it's currently um, going through some edits, mm-hmm. and then I'll be able to have an actual release date. And do you have a publisher? Or are you going to be self-publishing? We're going to self-publish this one uh, just because it, it'd be a lot easier. 
and uh, and honestly, I, I I'm totally cool with that. Uh, Archaeology and Fiction was originally self-published, but mm-hmm. then got picked up by a traditional publisher uh, a couple months later. Well, that's that's very nice, but I think that the, uh, the self-publishing is the wave of the future. It's unavoidable. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot easier on us, and we actually get to control it a little bit better, and that's why we're taking the time to really make it right uh, and make sure that we're both happy with it before it goes out, and then we can kind of control it a little bit better. Scott Vigay, thank you, Dr. Geek. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for Episode 63 of The Event Horizon. My we're pleasure, and I hope happy to see everybody have... at the fair. Absolutely. You have just heard episode 63 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for June 14th, 2014, with our guest Dr. Scott Vigay, otherwise known as Dr. Geek, from his radio show, Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom, which you can hear every Thursday here on Krypton Radio. To find out more about the Dr. Geek Science Fair, visit drgeeklab.com. Your hosts have been Station Manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer, Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, June 15th, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and again on Thursday, June 19th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Sherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>